And I am pleased to welcome to the Green Front my next guest, Osprey Oriole Lake, is a speaker, an author, a thinker, a very deep green thinker, someone I've heard speak at the Bioneers conferences and I believe elsewhere in my travels, 12 years of going to green conferences and being tuned into our environment, and an interesting time to have her on the show given she talks about reconnecting <clears throat> pardon me, with nature and what nature is trying to tell us. Uh, welcome to the Green Front. Uh, Osprey, and uh, I think Mother Nature is crying out between um, the uh, coal mine disaster we had back in March, lest we forget about that, followed on its heels by the BP oil disaster, and now we're in the midst of this uh, epic tragedy unfolding in Japan. Uh, it seems Mother Earth is, is, is trying to send us a message, do you think? Oh, I absolutely think so, and thanks for mu so much for having me on your show. And, um, you know, I just I think that it's time to just be very honest about what's at stake right now, and we're getting messages from the earth, we're getting messages from the accidents that we ourselves as a species are creating, and I think it's time that we get very clear we're at a remarkable time in which we're truly at a crossroads as a species and a planet, and I think we need to be very courageous and look into the face of that right now. We are at the crossroads, and we would have said that you and I a week ago, and even more so now, as uh, we have, you know, all too viscerally, we're feeling the perils of um, our addiction to fossil fuels and our sort of cavalier way in which we're going about building nuclear reactors on, you know, fault lines, on coastlines, and, and yet there's um, also a promise of, of a mid-course correction, if you will. Uh, we don't yet know all the lessons that we need to learn from what is unfolding. We don't know the scope of the disaster. Uh, but it's huge, obviously. I mean, we're still trying to take in the pictures, the video from the earthquake, 9.0 quake, monster quake in Japan, not to mention the tsunami washing houses and cars and bodies, you know, through towns, and then this nuclear disaster. It, it really is almost too much to take in, uh, and, and yet we must, and um, we must go forward. And maybe it's too soon to ask, you know, what do you hope comes out of this while we're still, again, in the middle of it. But what are your thoughts, uh, you know, given, again, at the crossroads a week ago, where does that leave us now, um, you know, at the crosshairs maybe? Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, it's moments like this and where, of course, we're just filled with heartbreak and fear and concern for our friends and family and in uh, Japan. And we also need to take the time to simultaneously step back because I think it really requires both responses, the immediate action um, to whether we're going to contribute to the Japanese Red Cross or, you know, Japan Ecolog Association, whatever we're going to do in this immediate response to help people in Japan and try to assess the situation in the immediate sense. But then I think it's also very important that we have deep reflection because the course we're on, as you said, has not been working for a long time. We've been at this crossroads for some years now, and how we're living on our Earth is simply not working. We're not living within the natural laws of our Earth and the natural caring capacity. And each action just brings us closer and closer to that reflection. And, um, you know, I wonder every day, what is going to be enough? Have we reached a tipping point in our understanding that how we're living as a species is not working? And I, I think that's what opportunities like this provide. Um, one of the things that I really love is a statement by uh, the environmentalist David Orr, and he has this great quote, which is, hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. And I think that's just a very appropriate statement uh -huh. for right now because I think action 
on all of our parts is one of the most powerful amplifiers of hope. And right now it's just so important for people to understand that there's no one can be on the sidelines right now. Whatever a person is passionate about that they want to get involved in, whether it's water issues or the climate issues or um, what they want to do about understanding nuclear power now that that's become such a huge uh, topic on our screen right now with this tragedy, that it's time to engage. All of us really need to be engaged. And I think that's, you know, you're asking about what does this bring forth? I think it brings forth the sense that uh, we all need to be on the front lines right now. Absolutely, and talk about power, the power of Mother Nature. Isn't that really the takeaway message that, you know, uh, we are so dependent upon her and um, her gifts, Mother Nature, Earth, and, and yet we forget that in our hubris so often, and that's what, you know, we're, we've been seeing with um, the, the, the oil spill, the lives being lost in the coal explosion, and, and now this, that um, we are dependent upon you know, Mother Nature, and we are at her mercy, and it is not nice to fuel with my nature. And, uh, you know, it, no, it can not, be a benevolent relationship or it can be a harsh relationship, and we're not helping make it a symbiotic, you know, supportable, thrivable, sustainable, you know, intimate uh, relationship with what we need for life, and that is uh, Earth and all her bounty. No, very, very well said. I mean, um you know, one of the things I'm dealing with in my book is about a concept called earth etiquette. And it's really how do we in contemporary society, now that over half the world's populations are living in urban environments mostly disconnected from nature, how do we renew this much deeper relationship with the natural world? Because I think it's very hard to understand how we care for the rivers, the waters, the forests when we have no direct relationship with them and don't understand them. And I think we need to take a big retake on this and say, you know, how do we in our daily lives get re-educated about the places that we live? And I'll just give, you know, a brief example. Um, you know, so many people now are learning about nature, let's say, on a television program about the ocean, which I think is great. We have them, but it's not the same thing as actually having a sensate experience of being by the water and seeing the sea life there and all the other things that happen were actually in the natural world. And um, environmentalist Paul Hawkins cites an example that I think is really important that if we ask adults or children to name some hundreds of brand names or logos about commercial products, they can do that immediately. But if you ask them just to stand right outside the front door in their neighborhood, whether you live in the city or the country, and ask them to name just 10 plant species, they can't do that. And one of so the most in, important interviews I've, I've done over the years is with Richard Louvre, of, who, of course, wrote Nature yeah, Deficit it, Disorder, Last Tree in the Wild. And, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, it, 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 it really crystallized for me the difference between how I grew up in, in what was then Santa Clara Valley, now Silicon Valley, playing out in the walnut orchards. We were surrounded by trees. When we moved in, we were like the third house on a cul-de-sac that was otherwise in an orchard, and going down to the creek and watching the, you know, tadpoles turn into baby frogs and how much fun we had and how my daughter even though I'm you know a green very green mom um, mostly gets her exposure to nature going to camp in Maine at least she has that but a lot of kids don't even have that 
and how she doesn't even know what she's missing, you know, playing outside and running around in her own neighborhood, you know, and experiencing nature firsthand viscerally. So that was such an important book, as is yours, to just remind us that we cannot save what we don't know and what we don't love. And with each successive generation, we're losing that memory of, you know, the places that we might have grown up with that were natural that are now, you know, a shopping mall or a parking lot. Yeah, and I, I think that it's very difficult to care for things that we don't know. And I think the other aspect is it's so affecting our thinking about what it means to live on this magnificent planet and respect the natural laws and also celebrate the awe and wonder of the earth, which also changes how we you know, have our ecological footprint when we really understand our deep interrelationship, that that's something that isn't intellectual, that it's, you know, the earth is our body, our body is the earth, and we are all connected. It sounds like such a you know, catchphrase, but to really understand that um, really affects how we're thinking. And one of the things I think is very important is this new emerging science called biomimicry. You might be familiar with that. Oh, yes, Ginny and, yes. Yes, and I, I love this work because uh, it's really based upon learning from nature as a model. And again, if we're not around nature, how do you model after how nature goes about doing things? And I think it's a wonderful discipline because it studies nature's designs and then emulates these processes um, to form sustainable solutions to human problems. And of course, the way nature designs is very regenerative. It's life-hancing, just innately. And um, I, I love one of the projects that Biomimics worked on in Zimbabwe, as an example, where they were looking at how to design um, a ventilation system in this very large building complex. And they went out to nature there and saw that these very large termite mounds, are quite large, made out of mud, were actually self-cooling. And the temperature there fluctuates quite a bit between the day and the night. And the way that these termites design this mound with their tunnels um, in specific ways creates these self-cooling mounds. And they use that same model in this building complex. And right now that building complex uses 90% less energy than conventional buildings that same exact size. So, you know, and there's many different examples about biomimicry, but I think also being in nature, understanding and respecting the natural world will produce a very different way about how we're looking at energy, how we're looking at solving our problems, because we really distance a lot of our design mechanisms and chemistry from what would be life-enhancing. So we've produced incredible toxins and all these systems of, of how we're going to produce energy that we're not really looking at a whole systemic ecological approach. So I think there's been a lot of uh, uh, dangerous um, ways of viewing how we progress and how we have growth because we haven't done it in alignment with the natural systems. And do you think that this crisis unfolding in Japan will wake us out of our slumber? I'm talking about as Americans. I mean, if you look at the nightly fare, I'm talking about prior to the um, earthquake hitting Japan. I mean, last week it was all about Charlie Sheen. And I'm sure you share my um, just um, puzzlement. I guess that would be a nice way to put it. Some nights I'm just, you know, shouting at my television. It's like we are, you know, obsessed with real housewives. We, you know, I'm talking about popular culture America and ignoring our own reality. And, and don't you think that part of the problem is we don't really have a lot of these kinds of programs that you're on right now in mainstream media. We have, you know, um, celebrity everything and business news and political punditry. And by the way, a lot of um, right-wing punditry, you know, dismissing climate change as being a real problem. Do you think that perhaps this, you know, um, 
perfect storm, this triple hit uh, that has shaken Japan to its core and the whole world is watching, will even wake Americans out of our complacency? You know, I would really love to hope so, and I really honestly have to say I don't know because I've seen these. I, I, that's why I was asking earlier in the program about, you know, is this enough? To wake us up because we've God seen forbid these kinds if of, it's not. What, 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 uh, what yeah, more do we I, need? I, it's like, what more do we need? You would really hope so, and I'm going to do everything I can through my organizational work and my networks to do so because every one of these opportunities is a chance to do that. And I hope that we do, and I hope that it, it, it really wakes us up to our programs about the future of nuclear power in this country, but also about, you know, when are we going to be awake enough to realize that we can't have any quick fixes. It's not working. Technology is not going to save us all. It's a part of our solutions. It's part of the components. We have incredible technologies that can move us to solar and wind and geothermal and other powers, and, of course, we need to have them uh, scale at an appropriate size, and there's all kinds of challenges. But I think we also need to understand that we have to deal with our collective will, which is also our thinking about these things, and we have to approach it at both levels with, you know, waking up the audience of America, but also combining that with appropriate technologies. And how about waking up the leadership of this country? How about an earthquake in Washington, D.C.? <laughs> that would that be would good. That would get them to stop playing politics with our planet, yeah. the only one we've got as far as I've seen. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, you know, I, I mean, we, we have a system that's just not working, and I think it's going to have to come. I agree we need to get our leaders involved and get them engaged, and we need an earthquake in Washington, D.C., and unfortunately, I don't think that we're seeing a lot of movement at a national level and that we've got to understand and, and realize and the hard truth that it's going to be in the hands and the hearts and the minds of American citizens and people around the world. It's, it's our time to stand up very strongly because we're the ones who have to create the pushback right now. And let's hope that the silver lining is that, you know, some of, so much of the, um, you know, garbage on the airways, mostly I'm talking about, you know, popular television, I guess. I have a teenager in the house, so she has a lot of that on that I wouldn't choose to watch, but I'm aware of it. You know, it, it just seems so trivial in the wake of this disaster, and this disaster, again, is not going to go away overnight. It's the, the repercussions, you know, economic, um, health. Uh, you know, Japan is a, you know, is a major player in terms yes, of flying doing. computers to cars. And uh, it, look at the ripple effect. Look at what happened just with the unrest in Libya, which is now knocked off the front pages and need to get back to, you know, what's going on in the Middle East and how that impacts our gas prices. Gas prices here in the Bay Area are over $4 a gallon today. Uh, because of, you know, Gaddafi and, um, you know, how vulnerable we are, and yet we're just not acting like we really are in a very small interconnected world, uh, let alone to nature, but just to each other in terms of nations. Yes, I agree. I think one of the biggest things that would be a powerful outcome of this recent disaster in Japan is for people to realize how interconnected we are. I mean, whether or not we're going to have any radiation here on the West Coast, as an example, is a big discussion here. Um, it doesn't look like that's likely, but just the fact that people are now running out and getting radiation pills because they're afraid of that. I mean, I hope that beyond the fear, it starts sinking into people's consciousness that we all are interconnected. We're not going to resolve these energy issues on our own, the climate crisis, water scarcity, deforestation on our own, that this new level of collaboration is needed. Exactly. And, you know, Thursday night I was up, like many people were, um, late, so I happened to see the, you know, uh, 
the earthquake um, coverage begin, you know, around midnight, stayed up till 2 a.m. And at 7 a.m. I was up checking to see if it would be safe for my daughter's school bus to cross, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge from Marin County into San Francisco because of the tsunami, you know, smaller, much smaller waves that they were expecting. Here, you know, on the West Coast, 12 hours after the, you know, giant tsunami hit Japan. So, you know, what it went from, you know, being a crisis over there, you know, halfway across the planet to suddenly a concern right here within 12 hours. And that, and that should really bring home how, how close we really are, what a small planet and what a fragile planet we are on. And, of course, we humans being very vulnerable to, you know, Mother Nature's wrath and what we're doing to Mother Nature, again, to not make it, you know, the kind of relationship that we need it to be. We just have a couple minutes left, and we haven't been able to talk too much about your book. I apologize. Maybe we'll have you back when things are a little calmer uh, ecologically. But um, you're, you have an event coming up that you'll be part of at the United Nations. Uh, it's, a, it's a women's event. Tell us about that. And your work yes. on, you've also started a climate change organization for women who are concerned about this crisis. Yes, um, I'm, I will be... Crisis. I will be um, in New York City on May 5th uh, for the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus Forum. I'm the director and founder of that organization, and we're working with how to collaborate with a lot of women all over the world to uh, deal with real solutions concerning the climate crisis, and that will be um, during the uh, United Nations Commission on Sustainable Development Week on May 5th. And I think, you know, since we only have a few minutes here, that the main point is that we're finding statistically that women are key constituency because, one, they're being impacted the most by climate change, but it turns out they're also key to the solutions. And just uh, one uh, uh, quick fact, here in the United States, over half the wealth is right now in the hands of women, and 80% of all consumer purchases are being made by women. And so we're looking at a campaign to have that 80% really put pressure on markets to go for um, new clean energy economy and really learning how we can utilize the power of women and their market power and also many other things. Women are also very good at collaborating. There's many other factors about women. Collaborating um, how and communicating. To really and, yeah, and, and how we can really utilize the, the um, wonderful collaboration of women to make a big impact on climate change solutions. Osprey, I thank you for your work, and I look forward to collaborating with you and communicating these messages uh, to everyone we can reach. And, uh, again, the book is Uprisings for the Earth, Reconnecting Culture with Nature. It's a great read. I recommend it. And uh, we'll have you back when we uh, can go a little bit deeper into your work. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. You're listening to The Green Front. I'm your host, Betsy Rosenberg. Hope you've uh, enjoyed this edition of The Green Front. Certainly learned a few things. I'm a little calmer after hearing Gwyneth Cravens uh, tell us that things are not quite as dire and um, we should not be panicking about the nuclear threat, but uh, it's, um, it's still happening. So we'll see. We'll stay tuned, and we'll see you next week. Uh, same time, same place, same Internet station. Have a great green week. Stay safe. <laughs>